So, how many HGTV fans do we have? HGTV fans. Anybody? Who, is anyone judging these people? No. HGTV is awesome, and I have a new addiction on there. Uh, have any of you all ever seen the show Boise Boys yet on HGTV? Th these guys, these, like two guys, and they're like polar opposites. Like one of them is like this... He looks like a he looks like the prototypical millennial, like he's just really nice, sharp dressed with their fade cut and the big frame glasses. And then you got this other one who's more of the Boise, Idaho redneck. One of them does the the sales and the design, the other one does all the hard work. What do you mean? What does that mean? One looks like Joe Lizer, one looks like Dave Medley. How about that? Does that work? I'm just playing with you. <laughs> You're the interior decorator, Joe, yeah. So I'm watching this the other day. <coughs> These guys, they go around to auctions, they buy, all, they buy these houses. Like, it's kind of like the same thing. As it's the same premise of every single HGTV show. We're going to buy the worst house in the best block. They say that in every single show. But they literally do this. They buy the worst house, and they try to fix it up. Well, <clears throat> one of the episodes I watched the other day, uh, they, they bought a house for $200,000 from an auction. And when they got there, I mean, it's, they said they walked to the door. They, they only looked at it from the outside when they bought from the auction, which is just a terrible idea in my opinion. They walk in and after they buy it, the thing smells like cat pee. Like the both of them are like trying to withhold their vomit like they're just trying really hard. Well then he crawls, the big guy, the, the, the construction guy, he crawls underneath the house. He finds out that the foundation of the house is only three inches thick. Now many of you are like, okay, Dave, if you were building a house, how thick would your foundation be? Thick as you can get it. Three inches would not be the ideal depth, would it? No, can imagine this. So they were walking, the reason they found this out, they were walking through the house, and they're walking through, and all of a sudden they feel like they're going downhill throughout the house. Anyone been in a building like this? You feel like you're going downhill? Well, then the, the interior designer guy is taller than the construction guy. But now he's in the bathroom, he's in the hallway, and now they're seeing eye to eye. That the bathroom is that slope. So that's when they find out, hey, their foundation is so messed up. Because when you build a house, you have to have a good foundation. Jesus even talks about how we should have a good foundation. Those who build our houses on rock are going to be better than those on the sand or those on the, anybody? Huh? <laughs> Never mind, we'll skip that. Dave, step it up. But, you know, you have to have a good foundation. So when we talk about, we're going to start a new series this, this week. It's through the book of Romans. It's called Foundations. Because what I want you guys to know is what the foundations of what we believe is. What you as a believer, what you should believe, what should be the foundation of, of your faith. Because if you realize this, that the world right now has all these different ideas of what faith is. They have all these different ideas of what God is. We have thousands of different religions. We have thousands of different Christian faiths. We have all these different denominations. What is the foundation for what we are to believe? Because you can go home tonight and you can pick up any book. It'll tell you what to believe. Other than, But sometimes we never pick this book up. So, this so tonight, we're going to start through the book of Romans to talk about the foundation of our faith from the book of Romans. Um, to give you a context of this book, uh, Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter to the Church of Rome around 57 A.D. So that's roughly 25 years after Jesus Christ had already left. So 25 years, Paul himself, he's been going around doing all these different missionary journeys. He's gone over, I found a list, and I can't even keep up with it, all the lists of all the different churches that he has now planted throughout the entire Asia provinces and lower Asia and parts of the Middle East that, that he is responsible for planting. But now Paul is writing from the city of Corinth. Anybody know what Corinth is? What country? I heard it. It's in Greece. 
Corinth is in Greece. If you read the letter from the first and second Corinthians, Paul's writing to that church. But now Paul has now finished his third missionary journey. He is in Corinth, and now he's writing to the Christians at Rome. So the recipients of this letter are the Christians in Rome. Now, the crazy thing about this is Paul's never been to Rome. He's never been there. And what he does not know is really what's all going on. But we're going to find out in a second. The stories that are being told about Rome is amazing. Now, how many of you all know anything about Rome? Anybody from your history classes? So they came into power about 40 years before Jesus was born. That's when they kind of took over all of the world, pretty much. They were the, the world powerhouse for or hundreds of years. And you can still see leftovers from their kingdoms today. Like I was in Hungary last year, last summer, and it's a country if you didn't know that, Hungary. I was in the city of Budapest. And in Budapest, we were walking around, and uh, the, our, our host family that we were staying with, his name was Eula, and Eula was asking about us, asking about, I wasn't here yet, at first I was with him, but he was asking about my church, he was asking about my dad's church, and my dad's church just celebrated 200 years of being a church, which is pretty cool, because we're like, what, 200 and, I can't do the math, 70 some years as a country, 240 years, I don't know, 240 some years as a country, right? So he has 200 years as a church. That's pretty impressive. Well, then Eula goes, we're 1,400 years as a country. I was like, okay, that's quite impressive. And then what was more impressive than that is that we, start, we started to see Roman ruins all over Budapest. Over 2,000 years old, these columns, these beams, all these different old houses, these old buildings, over 2,000 years old. Think about that. I'm walking through these ruins where Paul could have been walking through, or were some of these people that these early day Christians could have been walking through. But the interesting thing about Rome at this time, in 42 AD, in 42 AD, they had an emperor named Claudius who got so fed up with the Jews that he kicked them out of Rome. Because from what we can tell, the, the backstory of Rome, the Christians in Rome, they were not planted there. No one came to Rome as, to a missionary, as a missionary journey to plant a church. They got to Rome because if you remember in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes, people hear the, the gospel in their own language, in their own tongue, and they go back and spread it to their country. So that's where they believe the Church of Rome came from. But now in 42, Emperor Claudius kicks them all out of Rome. So you kick all the Jews out because the Jews always are causing uproars. Now, so if you kick all the Jews out, all now the believers in this, in this time were Gentiles. If they're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And now the Gentiles take over the church. So imagine you guys, how many of you, how many of you all live in Williamstown? Okay. Now what if I came up to you and I, I replaced Mayor Gene Ford, I won the election, and I kicked all of y'all who now live in Williamstown out. And I said, hey, everybody in South Parkersburg, North Parkersburg, feel free to move on in. How would you all feel about that? You would be very happy. So imagine this, the church in Rome that Paul's now writing to, the one that their stories are being told about them, are now in a church where all the Jews were kicked out, and three years before this letter is written, they're now allowed to come back in. So when they come back in, it's now a completely Gentile-led church. Everything the Jews stood against, everything the Jews hated, were now leading their church. Imagine that. In our time, the only thing we can probably think of is if I kicked all the Baptists out and brought all the Methodists in. That's the closest thing I can come up with. But imagine that, though. You are, you, when you come back to your church, you find it now is completely different. It's going to be completely different doctrines, be completely different thoughts, completely different theology, different beliefs. And now you've got to figure out how to cope with this. And so Paul comes to them 
and writes this letter. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning the Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. <coughs> Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And now he's getting specific to those in Rome. To all those in, in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all over the world. For God is my witness, whom I have served with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in orders that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks, to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the, also to the Greek for in, it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from, the faith, from, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome. When he writes this letter, like I said, it's a divided church, it's a divided people. And he's never even been there before. So imagine you're writing a letter to someone you've never even met. But the stories about their faith is being told all over the world. That they were a strong, faithful church, strong and obedient church. And they've only been around for 20-some years. And Paul is, has this big desire to get there just so he could talk to them a little bit more and encourage them, to share wisdom with them, and just learn from them. So we, if you see this passage, there's three different things that we can see that Paul, his motivations are. Paul showed his motivation in three ways. <clears throat> the first is in verse 11 and 12. In 11 and 12 it says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Mutual encouragement was the first motivation. How many of you have ever been on, a, on some kind of mission trip? Whether that's Nashville, overseas, Belpre, I don't know. If you've been on some kind of mission trip, Belpre needs Jesus too, right? I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying like every mission trips can go everywhere. No, when you go on a mission trip, the mindset that sometimes we walk into it is, I am going to serve. Or I'm going to show you how I do it. I'm going to show you what I think and what I believe. And usually what ends up happening is that you're the one getting served. You're the one being blessed. Those of you are, who went to Nashville, some of you are shaking your heads. I have been to so many different countries where that I, I walked in with that mindset, and I pretty much got slapped in the face because I did not go there to serve. I was actually being served when I was there. And what ends up happening is that at the end of the day, at the end of that experience, not, you did not just encourage them, they also encouraged you, Right? So Paul is now writing to these people and says, I want to come to Rome for the sole purpose of mutual encouragement. I want to come encourage you. I want to come help your church. I want to, I want to come help your faith. And by doing that, you're going to mutually encourage me too. 
It's like an old man coming to a young Christian and talking about his, his glory days and how things can be good for his life, things can get better. And at the end of the day, they're mutually encouraged. He wants to mutually encourage this church and then be encouraged back. The second thing, that second motivation, was a sense of obligation in verse 14 and 15. It says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach this gospel to you who are also in Rome. What does obligation mean? What do you all think of? Anybody? Something you have to do? What did you say over here? Oh. So something that you have to do. You, those of you who are employed, do you have to go to work? Yes. Like, you have to go. I, the only person I know that doesn't go to work is sitting back there, and he does Snapchats all day long. I'm looking at Dave, not Anda. That's you, Dave. No. So... Being an employee of First Baptist Church of Williamstown, I have certain obligations, right? I have certain things that I'm supposed to do. I have certain objectives I'm supposed to do throughout my week, throughout my day, throughout my year, throughout my tenure here, whatever that is. I have certain obligations that I have to do. These youth leaders signed up for certain roles and responsibilities, so they have certain obligations. It's not a negative thing, but it's something that they have to do. But now in this case, Paul is not talking about something that he has to do. He says, I am now obligated. What would bring that obligation? He says, I now owe it back to you. I owe it back to you. So imagine what he's saying is actually that you guys have paid something, and I am now paying you back. I am now paying back what Jesus did for me, and I'm doing it for you. I'm now under obligation for what Jesus Christ did for me, and out of that obligation, I'm preaching to you. And now who did he say he was going to preach it to? To the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. He pretty much, in that category of four names, labeled everybody. Who's the gospel for? It's for everybody. Sometimes we get that confused. We do get that confused sometimes. But you all remember going back to like Sunday school when you were little kids in Upstreet or uh, Awanas, and you remember the little uh, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in the sight. Remember that whole thing? I still have yet, never met someone that looks all like that description, but that's just me. But no, anyways. Also, on one of these mission trips that I've been on, just to kind of give you an example of over there, what it looked like, and then kind of open up our eyes to what it is here. I was standing in the home of an Indian man. Uh, he, was a, he was a minister. He planted his church in an all-black community. I thought he wanted to reach the all-black community. I was wrong. He viewed them as projects, not fellow people. And thought, I know how, I know what's best for you, so I'm going to do what you need to do. I'm going to say what you need to hear. All this different stuff. How many of those people in that community think came to their church? Zero. The crazy thing is they had probably 50 kids from the neighborhood come, but not a single husband, father, mother, daughter, nothing. None of them came. And I remember thinking, well, this is a little awkward because you planted your church in the middle of the black community to reach the black community, and not a single black person comes to your church. I was a little confused. Then the pastor opened his mouth, and I realized why none of them were coming to his church. He starts talking about in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, when, the, when sin came into the world. He made it very evident and very obvious who, did, who sinned first. Easy now. Did both sin? Yes. He was like, it was the woman's fault. It's the woman's fault that the sin is in the world. It's the woman. I'm like, Holy cow. I look around, there's not a single woman in the room. I'm like, I understand why. This is a little awkward. He was not doing this out of obligation. He was doing this out of his own pride. 
telling them all some pretty ridiculous things. But I'm sitting there going, I figured you'd put your church, I figure, my belief was that you put your church here so you could reach this community, share the love of Jesus with this community, regardless of your own personal agenda. Like, this is what you were wanting to do. You're obligated to tell, not just the ones that look like you, you're obligated to tell the ones that don't look like you. And I thought, okay, now, I looked at it, my dad and I looked at him one night, I was like, dude, you're racist. You're racist. That did not go over well. So whenever you bring that conversation up, just don't, just, hey, you're racist. Don't do that. It doesn't really go over well. And that, that really got me thinking about Middle Ohio Valley. It's hard to be, this is going to sound really, I'm not, so hear me out when I say this. It's hard to be racist when we're 99% white in this community. Right? Do you realize how prejudiced we are as a, as a region? Here's how we are, here's why we're prejudiced. It may not be in the racial things. Here's how I think we're prejudiced. We are defined in this community by where you live. You are defined by where you live. <clears throat> if you live in South Parkersburg, there is automatically this weird thing, this label that they put on you. If you live in Parkersburg, there's automatically this weird label they put on you. If you live in Williamstown, there's this weird label they put on you. Marietta, there's another weird label. And we've grouped people all by category about where they live. I remember when I first got here, someone said, so where do you live? I said, I live in Parkersburg. Oh. I live in a nice house. Like, what, what's the, oh, it's, it's pretty rough there. I'm like, where? <laughs> Where's it not rough? We were down in Huntington yesterday. I love the city of Huntington. Spent four, four years living there. There's this huge assumption of what the entire city of Huntington is like based off of CNN and the, and the heroin uh, documentary on Netflix. It does paint a picture, but what, what it is, it's not the entire city. It's not that entire thing. Not every single person that lives in Huntington is on heroin just because they live in Huntington. Right? I don't hate South Parkersburg because I live in North End. I could care less. But we have automatically in this region, we have this prejudice. And so it, bring, it comes into the church at times. We withhold the gospel from people because they don't look like us. They don't think like us. They don't live where we live. They don't speak like. Imagine, okay, speaking like, the, speaking like one another. You all that went down to Nashville, you heard the differences in dialect. Right? We even with not speaking like each other, we withhold the gospel. Paul says he is under obligation to Greeks, to barbarians, to the wise, to the foolish. He says, I am under obligation to every single person. The third thing, his third motivation, <clears throat> is confidence in the power of the gospel. In 16, verse 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also to the Greek. Paul, this is, <clears throat> some consider this Paul's most beautiful verse that he ever wrote. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Up until this point, this is coming to the end of Paul's days, his life. He's coming towards the end of his life. He's now looking back. If you go back through his history, if you look through the book of Acts, if you read through his other letters, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with people. He went to the Jews and said, hey, you all crucified Jesus. And they beat him. They mocked him. They put him in prison. He goes to the Greeks, the guys who are the most intellectual people in the world, and he starts challenging them, and he calls them all foolish. You're going to call a bunch of smart people foolish. He gets kicked out of Rome, he gets, or kicked out of Greece. He gets kicked out of all these different places, and now he comes to Rome, the largest uh, empire in the world. He doesn't care about who's emperor. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. He goes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, he did not say, I'm not ashamed of my life. Because I promise if you dug deep down into Paul's life, there was a lot of shameful things. We've talked about this when we looked through Philippians 3. 
a lot of things to be shameful of. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes. Here's what I want you to take away from that, just that verse. Is that you too, we too, can be unashamed of the gospel because Jesus Christ is unashamed of us. We too can be unashamed of the gospel because we too, because Jesus Christ is unashamed of us. Because what the gospel is, is in Genesis 1, God creates all things and declares it all very good. In Genesis 2 and 3, man screws it up. Let's sin, it wasn't just woman, it was all mankind screws it up. We mess everything up. And now we have to find out a way to get back to God. Moses comes along and they introduce the law. They introduce the Ten Commandments. They introduce these ten things. Ten simple things. That if you look at it, it's not difficult. The, the idea that we should not murder should be a given. Right? Okay, so thou shalt not steal. It should be a given. But the main two were love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love each other like you love God. And don't make any idols about, don't make any idols against him. It's all these things were so simple. And man keeps messing it up. But all that was doing was showing, here's the righteousness that you need to hit. Here's the standard of holiness that you need to hit. But the reality was that we would never hit that mark. We would never hit it. And so then Jesus comes through and says, you know what? The law was here to show you your life of sin. The law was to show you how your sinful state is. I'm here to say that law was just for that. I'm here. I'm, I'm establishing a new law, a new covenant with you that if you believe in me, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are restored, and you will now have a place in eternity with me. And if you look over each other's lives, if you look over your own life, there's a lot of things that we can be shameful of, right? A lot of things that we can be ashamed of. I can count over and over again every single day the amount of times I'm ashamed of something that I've done. And it's depressing to live in that shame, right? It's depressing. But you know the best part about it is that Jesus Christ doesn't look at that. How many of you ever go to car shows? Anybody? Yeah, okay, like three of you, so I'll speak to just you. So I love, my favorite part of Stormwell Festival is the car show. I love the car show during Stormwell Festival. I walk around with my father-in-law, I drool everywhere. They're amazing vehicles. Imagine, though, you always have these little rust buckets. Now, if you haven't seen, if you've ever seen the movie Cars, you're like looking at a Grand Prix, like this real nice uh, Camaro over here, and they look over, and there's Mater, right? And so imagine you look over this hunk of junk, like this thing is awful looking, and someone goes, you know what, I see the Camaro over there, I'm willing to offer, you know, about five grand for that, but I see this thing over here, and I'm, really to, I'm ready to offer a million dollars for it. And it's like, why would you even think about that? And then, then he looks at you and says, well, I can see the potential in it. I don't see the scars, I don't see all the dents, I don't see all the brokenness in it. I can see what it could become. And that's what Jesus does for every single one of us. When we look at our shame, we're just a rusty bolt of hunk of junk. That's what we are. We are so jacked up. We are so messed up. And Jesus says, you know what? I see what you could be, and that's what I'm counting on. That's what I'm willing to give my life for. I'm, I'm ready to give every single thing I have for it, because one day I promise you, you will be something grand, something beautiful, something whole, something perfect, something holy. That's why we too can be unashamed of the gospel, because Jesus Christ is unashamed of us. So how is the gospel, how does faith in the gospel bring salvation? It's the first thing. 
The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It says that in verse 17. It says, For in this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God, the righteousness that can only come from God, this idea that we can live up to a certain standard in this world is foolish in reality because the, the standard that we've been given is coming from God. But the only reason, the only way you can be right, the only way you can be good, the only the way you can be holy and perfect is that God allows you to, and God makes you that way. He makes you that way. The re- gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It's not from anybody else. The second thing, that this gospel is revealed through Jesus Christ. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and the gospel is revealed through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That God in the Old Testament says, here's the righteousness, here's what I want you to try to live up to, and you're not going to be able to get it. But I'm going to bring this other person here, my son, he's going to die for you, and through him you will receive this righteousness. You will receive this status. You will receive this new thing, this new life. Say the word justified. In a court of law, it must since you said you want to be a lawyer, in a court of law, when you are justified, you know what that means? You know what that means to be justified? You are now given new legal standing. Best way of saying it. So imagine, also, we're going to stick with Emma. Pick on you a little bit. Imagine... You go into the court, courtroom, and you are guilty as can be. I don't care what it is. You are guilty as can be, and you walk out of there innocent. How could that have happened? Something had to have happened for you to be justified like that. Something had to have happened on your behalf to make you new. And that's what Jesus wants us to know, is that he justifies you, that you are now have a new legal standing, that you are no longer just Grace Everly, sinful girl. You are now Grace Everly, new creation. And through that, he's now promising you a new life. That's where the gospel is, and that's how it was revealed through Jesus Christ. So for the next few weeks, we're going to spend time looking through the book of Romans, and it's 13 chap- or 15 chapters long, so we're going to kind of fly through it. We're going to do 15 chapters in six weeks. Because there's six topics that we're going to bring up. And tonight was the gospel. We're going to bring up a few different other ones. I believe that these are all foundation for you guys. If you really want to know who you are, if you really want to know what you believe, if you really want to be true to your beliefs, this is what you all need to hear. And that's why we decided to do this. But I just want you to listen back to Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to also the Greek. That you and me, every single one of us, despite whatever you've done in your life, through Jesus Christ, you too can be unashamed of the gospel because Jesus Christ is unashamed about you. He does not see your scars. He does not see the brokenness. He does not see the hurt. He does not see the pain. He does not see the tears. All he sees is a prized daughter, a prized son, and he wants to make you pure, he wants to make you clean, and he wants to make you whole. That's what he sees. He sees your potential. He does not see your brokenness. Let's pray.